So next weekend, we celebrate the resurrection. It's Easter, called that by tradition. But what is this weekend in church tradition called? Palm Sunday. Okay. So Palm Sunday marks the gospel account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem to begin his final week. He rides in seated on the colt of a donkey, and the crowds come out, and they are welcoming him by throwing their garments in the path in front of him, stripping off palm branches and laying them in the road before him, just as you would welcome a king. We know what happens at the end of the week, but between that entrance into Jerusalem and Friday, there were a whole lot of events that took place recorded by the gospel writers. In fact, uh, I'm going to pull up some of them and just walk through them very briefly. And you see if I miss anything as we go through here. Sunday, he enters Jerusalem. And he also just goes in and looks around in the temple courts where they're buying and selling. Returns to Bethany to spend the night with his friends. On Monday, he curses the fig tree which is a whole story in and of itself as to why he did that. He cleanses the temple, turns over the tables of the money changers, and uh, drives them from the temple. On Tuesday, his authority is questioned by the scribes in the temple, the religious leaders. He predicts the destruction of the temple and his return. On Wednesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. On Thursday... Several things happened. Uh, he is questioned by Annas, who was the former high priest, condemned by his son-in-law Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, appears before King Herod. Pilate, the governor, condemns him to death. He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And we know what happens on Sunday. So did I miss anything? No, Thursday was up there. There's something missing on Friday. Let's go back to Friday there. He was condemned. He was buried. Was there something between those? The cross. Okay, the cross is missing here. Now, actually, I did that intentionally. Just to point out that in the first century and even until the 21st century, there are many that would leave out the cross. For various reasons. Because, well, some think it foolish, some think it a scandal, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But that's what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the church in Corinth as he set forth the message of the cross. He said that it was scandalous to many religious people. And I don't know if that's the case with any of us here today, but it could be a cause for shame if we don't have a right understanding of it. And that's what I want us to consider and to put the cross in its rightful place in our hearts as well as in our theology as we consider this holy season the place of the cross. So if you've got your Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. And we're going to consider some principles that are in this powerful passage in this letter that Paul writes. They're in the bulletin uh, in your outline there. Here's the first. The sophisticated and the religious, then and now, think the cross unnecessary, foolish. That's a strong word. 
but that's the word that the Apostle Paul used. He, in the previous verse, has just been talking about the gospel, and then he says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross, this is the gospel, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What a contrast. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God for salvation. Now, in the first century world, the cross was a symbol of shame and humiliation. So who was in that first century biblical world? Well, Greek culture had permeated that whole region, the whole Mediterranean region, for quite a period of time. They spoke the Greek language universally there. But for many decades now, Rome had risen to power, and so they were the ones that controlled the Roman Empire. What was important to the Greeks in their culture? It was wisdom. Wisdom was what, what they gloried in. In fact, they had philosophers, and they debated, and they contemplated, and they felt like wisdom was the road to salvation as they understood it. But not the Romans. The Romans gleaned from that, but to them, power was what was important. In fact, they viewed the cross as an instrument of torture and execution and weakness. So to the Greeks and to the Romans, the cross was foolishness. The Romans, in fact, historian Garrett Fagan summarized how they viewed strength and weakness, and this is what he said. Ideas of human universal dignity were almost all but non-existent, and large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. Power is what mattered to Rome, and the cross was viewed as weakness and ridiculous. Well, what about the religious folks in the culture? Well, we think of the Jews. I mean, they were highly religious. How did they receive the cross? Generally, they rejected it because to them... The cross was a curse, and here's why. In their Old Testament, we call, them the, we call it the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures, it actually said anyone hanging on a tree was accursed of God. Why? They didn't stone in the Old, excuse me, they didn't crucify in the Old Testament period. They stoned people uh, for capital punishment. But then, according to the law, they would hang that person on a tree to depict uh, the crime and then that person was a deterrent to other would-be offenders of the law. But interestingly, prophetically, God had issued that decree that anyone hanging on a tree would be accursed, pointing forward to his son who would be hung on a tree and would become a curse for us. But they didn't get that. To them, 
anyone hanging on a tree was a curse. So how could a Messiah be cursed of God? They couldn't put their minds around that. And so to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. It was foolishness as well. It's no different today. For the so-called intellectual elites in our culture or to many who are religious. Let me give you a, a few examples here. I'll give you three quick examples of the intelligentsia, so-called. Deepak Chopra is an author who speaks globally and many are enthralled by his messages. He had an article in Time magazine in which he was speaking of the 100 most influential people and one of them he said was the Dalai Lama. And this is what Chopra said. The most inspiring thing the Dalai Lama ever told me was to ignore all organized faiths and keep to the road of higher consciousness. Without relying on religion, Chopra says, we look to common sense, common experience, and the findings of science for understanding and really for salvation. But salvation won't be found in common sense, common experience, or science. But he's in essence saying the cross is foolish. But the Bible says with, without the cross there's no salvation. There's a choice to be made. Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, an outspoken and quite a, uh, aggressive atheist, wrote among other things a book called The God Delusion. And he sat down with the editors of Time magazine and with a Christian scientist by the name of Francis Collins to debate God and the existence of God and the Christian faith. And then toward the end of the debate, Dawkins said this, My mind is not closed to the idea of God, as you have occasionally suggested, Francis. My mind is open to the most wonderful range of future possibilities which I cannot even dream about, nor can you, nor can anybody else. What I am skeptical about is the idea that whatever wonderful revelation does come in the science of the future, it will turn out to be one of the particular historical religions that people happen to have dreamed up. Now, that's a little cumbersome in how he words that, but what he's saying is, Oh, there may be something great coming down the road, but it's going to come through science. It certainly wouldn't come through any religion because those are just things that people have made up. And then he says this. I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. They strike me as parochial or narrow. If there is a God... It's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. To Dawkins, the cross is foolishness. By the way, Alistair McGrath has ably debated him, and he wrote The Dawkins Delusion, in which he says, no, the cross is central, and it is salvation. One more example of a an intellectual who considers the cross as foolish comes from our own University of Hawaii's religion department. Some of you may have seen Jason Sakashita's articles in midweek. Maybe some of you have taken his classes. But he regularly rails against the Christian faith um, and is paid by tax dollars to do that. That's my chagrin. But he had an article in Midweek, midweek Magazine a while back 
in which he related a young student coming to him and asking him what he thought about the destiny of her grandmother, who she wasn't sure was a believer in Jesus, and said some of her Christian friends had suggested her grandmother needed to put her faith in Christ. And Jason said this in his column, well, the Bible says lots of things. When people quote the Bible, they are telling you more about what's in their heart rather than what the Bible says, interestingly. In other words, there's no such thing as objective truth here. We've got to just say what's in our hearts, and that's all we're really spouting. But then he talks about Matthew 25 and Jesus' parable, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats in the end and how some people actually take the time and make the effort to clothe the, hungry, clothe the uh, naked and feed the hungry and to visit those in prison. And Jason concludes, that's how you get to heaven. If you'll do those things, ignoring all that the New Testament says about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, no one coming to God except through him. And then he says this. Based on what Jesus says in Matthew, I am certain to be rewarded with eternal life. I have two children. So I've been feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and taking care of the sick for many years. And depending on how my son turns out, I may have the opportunity to visit him in prison. Well, I appreciate Jason's humor there. I really do. But I would like to tell Jason, Jason, if you believed the gospel and if you shared that with your son sincerely, he'd have a much greater chance of avoiding prison. And the thing is, he's saying... The cross is foolish. 30 years ago, uh, there was a predecessor of his who was a religion professor at the University of Hawaii by the name of Mitz Aoki. Some of you may have taken his classes. And he, too, railed against the Christian faith. He was a brilliant man, by the way. I met his grandson, Ricky, in a Greek class in seminary because Ricky found Christ and the power of the cross in his own life. And he was a brilliant young man at that time, that's 35 years ago, and uh, has lived for the Lord through these decades. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the power of God for salvation to those who are being saved. That's the so-called intelligentsia in our world today. But what about the religious in our world? What do they do with the cross? Is it possible for those who call themselves Christians to think it unnecessary or in their practice to live as if it is? Let me give you some examples as to how I think it is. In our religious stream in America, we have liberal churches, often called mainline churches, who have all but set aside the cross. To them, the focus, the emphasis is on the teachings of Jesus. If you'll do what Jesus said to do, if you'll uh, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and visit those in prison, that's the way of salvation. It's all about the teachings of Jesus. The cross is downplayed, and there's good reason, because many in those pulpits don't even believe in the resurrection of Christ. The cross becomes meaningless. It's about how we live, and... The cross is negated in that theology. On the other end of the spectrum, you'll have fundamentalist churches where it's all about the rules, not even the rules of Scripture, 
but rules that have been added to Scripture uh, as to what we ought to do as good Christians and what we shouldn't do. In, in essence, they're saying this is how you are saved. They talk about the cross, but the real hope is in how you live. But that's not New Testament teaching. Neither of them is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Galatia, who had Judaizers within it, who had come in saying that, okay, you can believe in Jesus, but you need to live according to the law, this is what Paul said to them. It's powerful. Galatians chapter 2. He said, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And then he says, I do not nullify or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If, if righteousness comes by following the teachings of Jesus or by keeping the rules, then Christ didn't even need to die. But in fact, it's through his death that our salvation comes. Not through our efforts, through his finished work on the cross. Returning to 1 Corinthians, Paul has just talked about the cross being foolish for those who are perishing, but the power of God for those who are being saved. Then he quotes Isaiah, where Isaiah is speaking for God, and he says this, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul looks over the Mediterranean landscape, all the purported wisdom of the Greeks and the Romans, and says, in... God's economy, that is foolish. The highest pinnacles that they've reached is foolishness and weakness to the wisdom and the strength and power of God. And that's what it is today in Tokyo, Beijing, or in New York City or Paris. All that the wise and powerful have come up with pales in contrast to the wisdom and the power of God that filters down to the message of the cross, of God coming among us to redeem us through that execution stake. Here's the second principle. The word of the cross, foolish to some, displays for believers the wisdom of God and his power to save. Paul continues in verse 21, says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And that message preached, of course, is the gospel, the word of the cross. That's how people find God, get to know God, not through the wisdom of this world. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, look at that 
phrase that follows the Jews there, a stumbling block. That's the word in the Greek language that is scandalon, which is translated into English, scandal. The cross to the Jews was scandalous, and to the Gentiles, simply ridiculous, foolish. Then he says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's interesting, in the last 10 years, a lot of really aggressive atheists have surfaced and have been writing and trying to gain a following for their atheistic beliefs, which is interesting in and of itself as to why they would even care. Maybe it helps them to feel stronger in their beliefs, but uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and others have, have been outspoken atheists. But that's been the case down through the ages, actually. A century ago in England, there was an atheist by the name of Charles Bradlaugh. And he was always putting things in the paper about espousing his atheistic beliefs, challenging people to debates. And he would conduct regular debates with theologians or preachers. But, boy, he was tough. This guy had a mind like a steel trap, and he was really a great debater. And then one day he challenged a man named Hugh Price Hughes to a debate. Now, Hughes wasn't a theologian. He wasn't even really a regular preacher. He was a simple servant of God in the slums of London, caring for the most down and out in that city. And, uh, but he challenged him in the papers. And that really got London's attention. And they were wondering, I mean, they knew about Hughes' ministry there among the downtrodden, but they wondered, would he accept it? And if he did, how would he fare against this man who had brought preachers and theologians to their knees on the stage? And they wondered. And then Hughes, in a statement in the paper, accepted the challenge. But with one condition. And here's how he worded it. I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. And then he said, but if you cannot bring 100, I'll be satisfied with 50 such men and women who will stand and testify how they've been lifted from lives of shame by the influence of your teaching. If you can't bring 50, bring 20 who will say, as my 100 will, that they have a great joy in a life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. But if you can't bring 20, bring 10. Nay, Mr. Bradlaugh, I challenge you to bring one, just one man and woman who will make such a testimony regarding the upliftings of your atheistic, atheistic teachings. Bradlaugh withdrew his challenge. It is the power of the cross that transforms lives. And so many of you would stand up today and specifically testify, yes, I have found deliverance from sin and guilt and the shame, and I continue to find deliverance through my faith in the crucified one that changes my life day by day. That's how it's displayed. One last principle, and I love this one. I think this is so amazing and stands in contrast to the wisdom of the world. Here it is. God, in his wisdom, actually chooses and uses what the world writes off as foolish 
to display his power. Paul continues in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now, there are among believers today some that are noble, some that are mighty, some that are wise. There are. There are celebrities of the faith. And I love it when some great athlete comes out for Jesus or, or maybe uh, some other person in our culture. I think that's really neat. But actually, most of us are really ordinary people. Not mighty, not great. Uh, God delights in weakness in what the world marginalizes to display his transforming power in. Then we can't brag about it. We can boast in the Lord. And he concludes this passage by saying this. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what the message of the cross does for us, folks. It brings to us a wisdom that the world has not comprehended. It brings to us a righteousness that we could never have earned. That's Christ's righteousness imputed to us through our faith. It brings to us sanctification, which is a word which means we are being made holy. It's a process, isn't it? And that comes from the power of the cross too, day by day into our lives. And it brings to us redemption. Yes, we've been redeemed, but ultimately we will be redeemed when we are ushered into the presence of Jesus. All this, who did this? Look at that first phrase. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It's all of God. And only he is the one deserving the praise. We boast in him. My conclusion, really, of this message and of this passage is this. An empty tomb without the cross leaves us with an empty faith. We're excited to get to Easter. I love the Easter season, and I love to celebrate the resurrection. But we must not miss the cross. Because without the cross, it's empty, just as the tomb was. Paul said in Romans that the resurrection vindicated the cross. That that was how God said, yes, payment has been accepted for the sins of those who believe. Here's something Max Lucado said, and I'll close with this, about the cross. He said it rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? 
Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history, a crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal. The death slayer never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge, period. If not, the cross is history's hoax. Which is the cross for you, hinge or hoax? I want to challenge you this week to put the cross at the center of your heart. How are you going to do that? I, I want to encourage you to go to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to the ends of the gospels and just read and reread the account of the crucifixion. And what Jesus suffered on that cross, what he said from the cross, what people responded to as they observed the cross. And just contemplate what he accomplished on the cross for you and for all who put their trust in him. Let's focus on the cross this week. Let's come Friday evening to our Good Friday service and, and just put the cross at the center of our theology and our lives. And then we can come on Easter Sunday morning and we can celebrate the death conqueror and the vindication of the price that was paid on that cross. That sets us free. That is deliverance. It's not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God to free us from sin. Let's bow together for prayer. We rejoice in what some call absurd because your wisdom is so far above ours. How could you remain just and justify sinners? Only by becoming sin yourself on that cross and absolving us of the guilt and the condemnation that was so rightfully ours. We glory in you, Lord, our Savior, who came to give his life on that cross. And we do so in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.